It's more than numbers that defines the middle class. I think in many ways we forgot what brought us the middle class. It's that sense of security we felt taken care of and we felt confident that we could build something even better for ourselves. In the 70s, close to two-thirds of people were comfortably in the middle class, and by 2015 that number had dipped below 50%. Few people are getting richer and most everybody else is getting poorer. And that just is making people both objectively less economically secure, but also they feel less economically secure. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. Stephanie and Lentz, and this is my husband, Stephen. Hello. Hello. And um, we have our kiddos. Uh, Danger is almost four. And then our Vivian is a year and a half. I'm a firefighter down in Enumclaw, full time. And I mean, you think you call 911 and you think, are the police going to take care of it? If the answer is no, then the fire department does it, right? So trees across the roadway, down power lines, grandma fell out of bed, CPR, car accidents. Think of a reason someone called 911 and ask the question. You'll figure out that's that's what we do. And I am a retired elementary school teacher, and I stay home with the kids. And I'm opening a zero waste grocery store called Scoop Marketplace. Steph's grocery store hasn't started yet, so we don't have any income from that yet. But I make roughly close to 80 grand a year through firefighting. Living as a middle class is kind of a nebulous idea now. I mean, before it was you know white picket fence two and a half kids, a dog, and two-story house, you know? But it's definitely changing. And the whole, you know, keeping up with the Joneses thing, I think is a very real idea when people think, what does middle class look like? And I think really what it comes down to is being able to live comfortably with a standard of living, right? So you don't have to have two jobs or three jobs to be able to afford to live comfortably. I think that's kind of where the middle class is. Not that you're independently wealthy or you know you you take six months of vacation every year but that you can have some leisure time you're not necessarily stressed by financials and you can have decent comfort today we're going to talk about whatever happened to the middle class and joining me is civic ventures fellow paul constant and paul i believe you are a genuine middle class person i am i I have a certificate somewhere uh Yeah, I grew up a uh, middle-class kid in Maine. Uh, my dad worked at a paper mill uh, in southern Maine called S.D. Warren. It was in Westbrook, Maine. He didn't work pulping trees or anything like that. He was in the accounting department. And I still remember we used to drive through Westbrook on our way to church, and the smell was just atrocious. I don't know if you've ever smelled a paper mill, but it's pretty gassy smell. My dad used to roll down the windows and say, you smell that, kids? That's your bread and butter. That's food on your table. And uh, he took a real pride in working at the mill. And my mom was a homemaker. And that meant my dad 
you know, financially carried the whole family on his back. Right. And he uh, he did a really amazing job with investing his money and with stretching every dollar, you know, and he made sure, you know, we couldn't afford to go to Harvard or anything like that, but all four of his kids, we could all attend, you know, University of Southern Maine. And, you know, he died about 10, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, but he made sure that my mom doesn't have to worry about anything. You know, she can retire and we can take care of her until the end. And I think that, you know, my dad wasn't a very effusive, emotional person, but I think that making sure that we were taken care of was his way of letting us know that we were taken care of. And he really put a lot of work and took a lot of pride in the fact that he did that, that he yeah. he took care of us. And, and for me, that's what the middle class is all about. It's that sense of security, that idea that something terrible might happen. You know, his paper mill was bought by a South African company a couple of years before he was downsized and he was worried about his job. I remember yeah. that. And it was, it was real, but at the same time, he also knew we had this underlying cushion right. sort of to protect us. And he knew that he could take care of us that way. And that was his, I guess Oprah would call it his love language, but it was real. And we, we felt taken care of and we felt confident that we could build something even better for ourselves. And, you know, to me, that's what I think of when I hear the term middle class. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And, and it was, you know, honestly, I think it was the the dominant story of America for a super long time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, to be clear, the story for every family and a lot of families at the height of the middle class. Certainly families of color were left behind and mm -hmm. treated poorly. But for sure, the story that you just told is the same story that people who grew up in the neighborhood I grew up in and the suburbs of Seattle told. They were Boeing engineers or teachers or mid-level uh, business people and they all could raise a family really successfully and feel secure and feel enfranchised. And I do think, I agree with you completely, Paul, that it's more than numbers that defines the middle class. I think it was President Clinton who said that the quiet miracle of a normal life, oh. uh, just the the idea that you're secure and can afford to invest in yourself and your family, and that you know you're not hanging on by your fingernails, and that's mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing. But that is for sure that that whole thing that is for sure receding in American economic life, and the numbers are pretty stark. In the '70s, close to two thirds of people were comfortably in the middle class. And by 2015, that number had dipped below 50%. And a great way to understand what happened is to look at the median income in America today is $59,000 a year for a family. But if the median income had been held harmless by increasing inequality since 1980, that number would be $86,000. So middle class people would earn 86000 if society hadn't become more unequal. And if we had all individually participated equally in increases in productivity since 1980, the median family would earn over $100,000 a year. And I think that those numbers kind of dimensionalize the relative decline of incomes in the middle class. That's interesting because usually when politicians use the phrase middle class, they're sort of using that as a shorthand to describe all Americans. And I know that a lot of Americans who are not in the middle class describe themselves as middle class. That's traditionally been the case. But 
so what you're saying is we can put a number to it and that number is in fact shrinking. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the conventional definition, the sort of economic definition of middle class is people who make between two thirds and double the median US household income. Basically the middle of the bell curve of income distribution. But that the number of people who fall within that definition is shrinking and it's shrinking pretty fast. And that's because a few people are getting richer and most everybody else is getting poorer. And that just is making people both objectively less economically secure, but also they feel less economically secure. And another dynamic, of course, going on is just the way in which costs for most people are outstripping the increases in their income, like in Seattle, Washington, where we live. The average house is now $750,000, which is just you know, it's a lot of money, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, and if you have a mortgage on that house, if you try to buy it today, it would cost in the range of $4,000 a month. And as you know, childcare in our city costs, whatever, $1,500 a month. And yeah. It adds up to more than $59,000 a year pretty fast. Right. And it's just, it's getting harder and harder to make it. I haven't had to work and we've been comfortable, but it's obviously changing. And where we have to live in order to maintain that comfort has changed over the last decade. And I think that we would just continue to get pushed further away from the city or maybe into another state if we just stayed at that same income level and that same comfort level. It's kind of like watching yourself in a mirror, right? Looking at how things are changing or gas right everyone remembers when gas is 25 cents a gallon and everyone's like hey how, that's all of a sudden four dollars a gallon no it's not four dollars a gallon all of a sudden right it's not an overnight shift it's a slow change so it's not anything that off the top of my head i can look back and be like oh this defining moment is you know healthcare is more expensive or groceries are more expensive it's just everything has gotten more expensive Hi there. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Awesome. So, Heather Boucher, I am the Executive Director and Chief Economist at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Awesome. And I want to introduce our podcast listeners to Heather Boucher, uh, who I have known for, wow, a long time now, many, many years, um, and is a warrior in the world of economic justice and fighting against inequality and has had a ton of roles spanning a bunch of different organizations doing that work. So welcome. And uh, today we wanted to talk a little bit about the demise of the middle class and sort of the facts and figures around that. Uh, So anyway, you know, if you zoom all the way out, Heather, like what's happened to the American middle class over the last 40 years? Well, the last 40 years is not in general, been good to America's middle class. You've seen this this hollowing out, um, an increase in incomes at the top, a sort of flattening in the middle, and a falling behind those at the bottom. You know, we used to have in America, you know, we used to be a place where you had a lot of economic mobility, or we thought we did. We used to be a place where you could get a high school degree or an associate's degree and support your family and be able to have some economic security and all those things that define what we as Americans think of as middle class. And increasingly, the past 40 years have um, been decades when that's been out of reach for more and more families. Um, Everything that 
that constitutes that basic middle class lifestyle has become more expensive, housing that is easy to get to from your job, a good education for your kids, right? A good public school, you know, affording a home in a in a community that has good you know, public schools that are easy to get to. Um, higher education, of course, is astronomically expensive. Healthcare, which you know, we made a lot of progress during the Obama years in terms of expanding yep. coverage and making it easier to, for people to afford it. And we've been moving backwards for the past few years. Child care and elder care, big ticket items in terms of how we care for our families. All these costs have gone up. And at the same time, you know, we haven't seen people bringing home more money from their jobs for lots of different kinds of middle class occupations. So it's been decades of challenges for the middle class. And I think that you know, moving forward, we're at this moment on the cusp of a lot of really good ideas about what to do about it, but I think a lot of real frustration about where we went wrong, who's to blame, and you know, and we're thinking this year, of course, with the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the start of the unwinding of the U.S. economy a decade right. ago and the financial crisis, that also played a role in what's happened in middle class, the, the rise in debt right. um, that, is, that has fueled so much spending that isn't sustainable, and yet there's not a lot of other answers for families out there. So, not to put you on the spot, but what are Heather Boucher's top five or ten reasons that explain why this happened? Like, as you think about, like, the causes for the demise of the middle class, what were they? How do you parse that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I spend most of my time thinking about, so yeah. I can see if I can, you know, kind of pull it together, you know. I think in many ways we forgot what brought us the middle class. And the, some of that is about a set of policies that directly support workers and their families. But a lot of it was about creating a structure that um, our economy was embedded in that gave middle class workers some economic and political power. Right. And we've seen that eroded in no small part due to the rise of inequality, which has stripped families of all kinds of powers. You've seen those at the very, very top have be able to take on more power in the political realm and the economic realm. We can talk about some of the specifics there. But what that's meant is that the middle class hasn't been able to lay a claim on growth, right? I, I mean, I should sort of say, as we started off and you said, you know, what's, you know, what's been happening to the middle class, it's sort of this very downbeat story, right, of um, stagnation. But when we're thinking about why, one of the biggest things that we need to keep in front of us is that the United States remains an enormously rich country. Our country has gotten richer and richer year after year. Productivity has continued to go up. So it's not that American workers aren't producing stuff. It's not that they aren't, you know, doing their, their part, but they're no longer getting a fair share. So if I were to point to one thing, I would start with the demise of unions. Uh-huh. And, not, and I would actually think of that not just on the shop floor, the role of unions in everyday workers' lives, but the role of unions in creating a space for middle-class workers around the country to have a voice in our economy and our society yeah. and a place to hash out differences and have conversations. And we've lost so much more than just whether or not any worker has a shop steward to go to with their individual problem or to bargain on behalf of their own wages. We've lost this place in our society to have a voice for workers. Right. And that 
that's enormous. Um, as we were thinking about, um, you know, uh, the, the, the role of balancing power, I think we forgot that if you allow inequality to just increase and increase, pulling at the very, very top, you're creating this massive power imbalance. And so many of the policies that have eroded America's middle class come from that imbalance. I think of, you know, one thing that economists are talking a lot about now, a lot of people are talking about is we're seeing this rise in monopoly power. So fewer and fewer firms accounting for more and more of the products that we buy. Amazon, great companies that I buy stuff from all the time. But, you know, you realize you're like, wow, this is this, this new power that these smaller and smaller number of firms have, which is so many things. One, it gives those companies so much power over workers. Yes. Because in so many communities. They're the only option. Exactly. So nurses, a, a classic example, right? In many communities, there may be a number of hospitals that you could work at if you're a nurse. But they're all owned by the same company. Right. So if you don't like the working conditions, you don't have any bargaining power, right? Yeah. So can I can I ask a slightly, uh, a little bit of an epistemological question, which is, what was it, do you think, that led to those policy changes? Like, there's a there's a really interesting question to tease apart, which is the cause and effect dynamic, right? These are feedback loops. Is that for sure? The richer the rich get, the more economic and political power they have, the easier it is for them to um, uh, manipulate policy agendas to make rich people even richer. And, you know, I often think about, you know, the neoliberals of the 60s, 70s and 80s and the power of those ideas to reshape what became the collective common sense around how high functioning economy Works and and you know the, the the one of the best exemplars of that is the insistence that the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders and that by so doing we benefit everybody because that's what's most efficient. Like this was, this was an idea presented essentially as a law of nature by people like Milton Friedman. That totally took over the minds of a lot of Americans. Do you agree with me that? that's a super important part of this story? I could not agree with you more. Let me actually take it back to your first question as a way of kind of engaging with you on this. You started out by saying, Heather, what's happened to America's middle class? Yeah. And I think when most of us think about the economy, there's, you know, when I tell people I'm an economist, a lot of times they'll ask me what I know about the stock market. And I'm like, what? I don't, really, I don't actually do that. But that's fine. But, you know, one of the things that comes up time and time in the political context, of course, when you're talking about, quote, unquote, the economy, what people are really talking about is how can I, what, what's going to create good jobs in my community? What's going to yeah. make my community prosper and, and create economic security for me and my family, right? And that fundamental question is a bit, mysterious, right? So how do those good jobs, be, are, are they created? I um, I grew up in uh, the Seattle area, actually. Uh, I spent my school years in uh, Muckleteer, Washington, and my dad worked at the Boeing plant, where they made the 747s back in the day when I was a kid. It's about a mile up the hill. And, um, you know, when I think about what creates good jobs in the community I'm from, I think of Boeing. So the story that you're telling about shareholder capitalism, about what makes the economy grow. For a long, for this, this story used to be one that was about, okay, it's about you know companies like Boeing and they're creating this, this product, 
that is value that people want, and then they're creating these jobs and that you know these Boeing was is and was unionized at least in the Everett plant, um, and those workers are getting some some benefit from that pr production, and so they're getting these good wages, and then they're going out and being good consumers in their community. It's sort of the Henry Ford model we yeah. used to think about. And at some point, we shifted it so that it was just about Boeing making a lot of money, but people were still told, well, unless Boeing does good, unless you make them super, super happy, they're going to pack up and leave your community, and it's, and it's connected to this idea of monopoly. For too long, I feel like over most of my career, People have talked about what's good for the economy as though when they said the word economy, they meant what was good for business. Yes. And yet consumption, which is what you and I do when we go to the store and buy stuff, is about 70% of U.S. total aggregate demand, right? So what, what is happening inside families, and families are the ones who supply the workers to the firms that hire them. We are the families are the place where we buy stuff. It is for families and for people that we have an economy at all, right? Because if you didn't have people that need us, you didn't need an economy. So my fantasy is that someday we have as many 24-hour news stations focused on the economy, like what works for families and people, as we do for what we see right now on television, which is all of these news stations that supposedly are economic news, which is just focused on this small slice of yeah. profitability. What's, what's happening in the stock and, market? Yeah, that's yeah. not the economy. Yeah. And so that's the one thing I wish people knew. And I think if everybody really got that and voted on that, then we could actually start having a tax system that, that incentivized the right kind of economic activity and that brought in the kind of revenue we need to do the things we need to do. And I'm just a little obsessed with the Trump tax cuts because I'm so angry yeah. about them. Different policy issues. Yeah. So, yeah. I love it. Okay, Heather, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Bye. So that conversation with Heather Boucher was great for me because it, it sort of connected the family dynamic with the numbers that we're talking about and you know sort of sort of made the economics real I don't think we're we're very much better off than our parents um, my mom is definitely probably in a similar middle class or upper middle class position and then our Stevens parents and my dad are definitely in a better position. I'm not sure that Stephen's parents have made investments that are gonna carry them very far into their retirement. My dad, on the other hand, has invested a lot in real estate, so he's going to have plenty of passive income over the coming years. So in that sense, they're definitely already in, in a very good position. I think with my job, I'm fortunate that if we really wanted to, we could maintain a lifestyle of being able to have stuff stay at home but we want more than just the limited version of that and I want to provide a legacy you know I think that's something that's missing from the current middle class sector that we're in is that you know I can I make a decent wage but I'll never be able to pay for college for my kids if they want to go you know I'm not going to be able to leave them a whole lot when I retire you know and firefighters don't live long after retirement statistically anyway right so you know, when it comes down to legacy building and the future and building more than just the current now and, you know, occasional Disneyland trip, a single job doesn't cut it. 
Zach Silk, who is president here at Civic Ventures, got a chance to sit down with uh, moral philosopher Matthew Stewart while we were in Boston recently. Matthew wrote this amazing piece on inequality for the Atlantic. Well, a lot is said about the 1% and the 99%, but what about the 9.9%? Our guest, Matthew Stewart, joins us to tell us about the 9.9% and his thinking on the new aristocracy in America. All right, my name is Zach Silk. I'm the president of Civic Ventures, and I'm happy to be here in uh, the Boston area. Could you give a little bit of texture to who are these 10% of roughly, these 9.9%? Because my imagination is that most of them would not think of themselves either as aristocrats or gentry or even elite, but uh, who are they? Right, so the economic measures, I think, are only approximate. You have to bear in mind that you can't just say, oh, you have X amount of uh, wealth or X amount of income you are in this group. Nonetheless, the economic statistics gives us a general sense of what's going on, and what they show is that there is, in fact, this top 10% of society that has pulled away from everybody else. So um, whereas before, uh, let's say 50 years ago, the, the wealth of that top 10% of American society was about, um, on average, uh, 10 times that of the median, uh, it's now closer to 24 times the median. So it, what that means is that we've got a group that's pulling away from the median. They haven't actually been gaining in relative share. That's all gone to the top 0.1%. But in terms of wealth, that's where they are. Now, who are they in terms of, of people? There's a, there's a big misperception in a lot of the discussions about the top 1%. I think the idea is that they're they're mostly fat cats and, um, you know, uh, casino owners or tech bros and, and people like that. And yeah, there's some of those in the mix. But when you look at the numbers, many of these people are basically professionals. Um, so it's people who have gone up through the meritocratic system, and often they, they deserve their position in a certain sense because they've you know, competed in the educational races and they've won to some extent. So they're not um, a particularly exotic crew. I'd say by and large, it's what we think of as the meritocracy, the bureaucratic sort of class, the, the courtier class to some degree mm. yeah, in our society. But, you know, I, I think also we have to be careful to make too many big generalizations because, of course, modern society is incredibly complex, and you can't just put them all in a big bucket. But what's important is that this group has a significant role in the sort of political and social dynamics of our culture. One way of thinking about it is that, you know, if you think of human labor in, in the broadest possible terms, everything that we do is, is some form of labor. But then there's, within our society, there's some categories of labor that... Um, essentially are self-regulating and self-controlling and that are consequently kind of protected. They're sort of sheltered from uh, from market forces. And then there's another category of labor um, that isn't, and that is uh, where people are kind of left out on their own. Um, and basically our 9.9% is mostly in that protected category. Mm. And it's the, the, the rest of society, which is the biggest part of society, where essentially they're left to fend for themselves against um, you know, the demands of the, of the capitalists. That's fascinating. One of the things that we really enjoyed in the piece was there is this myth of the ladder of opportunity in America and uh, that there is a bit of a meritocracy and you can work your way up the ladder. And you help put a different um, spin on that metaphor using using this idea of rubber banding could you unpack that a little bit? Because I think it's an interesting way to think about it. If you've got in your head that we have this ladder and that it's relatively easy to go from rung to rung if you work hard enough, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case any longer uh, in America. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. 
Yeah, sure. It's one of the amazing myths um, in American society. And I, I, it's, it's hard to imagine how we get away with it because the empirical evidence is very clear. The United States is not a particularly mobile society. I mean, we, we're supposed to be. It's the land of opportunity, but that isn't what the data actually tells us. So here's what the data says, that we have, let's say, the rungs in our ladder are um, farther apart here than they are in many other countries. Now, the question I think that people are asking when they're asking about mobility is, well, if I start off on rung number two and, I'm, and I want to climb up and I end up on rung number eight or nine or 10, you know, what are the odds of my doing that? And uh, one way of measuring that is to basically look at the correlation between your parents' income and your own income. Uh, and you can basically then quantify that in a measure that's called intergenerational earnings elasticity, which is just a measure of how much of your variation of income is explained by your parents' variation from the standard income. Uh, and so you can think of that as kind of a rubber band that ties you uh, to where your parents were on, on that ladder. Uh, so uh, if that rubber band is very tight, you're just going to have difficulty moving up. And conversely, if it's very tight and you're born at the top, you're going to have difficulty moving down. Uh, so there's a measure for that, and on that measure, the United States is uh, at the top of the league in terms of the, in the developed countries. I mean, we're up there with the UK and Italy. Uh, we are, have much tighter rubber bands than places like Japan and Germany, uh, and we are, are much, much less mobile than uh, the Scandinavian countries. We're on an upward trajectory, and the latest data shows that the, these rubber bands are getting tighter. We're getting more and more locked into our place in the ladder. Um, so we're headed towards, um, you know, something like Chile or Argentina in, in terms of that number. If you were to draw lessons from history and then give us a, a guide to what we might do about this, what, what are the things that people do in these circumstances that prevent us from sliding further? Uh, what are the historical examples or what, what guidance would you give? So I think of it mainly in terms of balances of power and, and making sure that our distribution of power maps out to the people at large. And essentially, to put it in other words, that our institutions and our forms of life are as uh, inclusive as possible. So uh, that is to say, uh, I think there's a lot of emphasis now on redistribution of income. And, and for me, the problematic aspect of that is not that that wouldn't be well deserved. It's just that um, it, it kind of supposes that the existing distribution of income actually reflects the contribution of people to society that, you know, the, well, the, the people who are making huge incomes, that's because they're, you know, helping everybody else out so much by making so much money. And that's basically a bunch of baloney, right? And so when you, when you simply take some of that money and redistribute it around, you're not changing the, the underlying logic. What does change the underlying logic is, for example, giving people who didn't have the vote the vote. It's imperfect because, of course, they can then still be uh, manipulated to some degree. But when you give, for example, the formerly enslaved people a vote, as Frederick Douglass said, now that we've used the bullets, give us the ballot. Um, that makes a, a, a structural difference. When you give women the vote, that makes a structural difference. And then uh, in the case of labor, the reforms of the early 20th century did a tremendous amount to uh, put power into the hands of, of laboring people that allowed them to, to build up unions. And there was a tremendous increase in um, union membership around that time. Those kinds of things, they're structural moves, but when they're effective, what they do is they essentially make sure that power matches the actual resources that we have in society, which is people. So if we can map power away from privileged groups and people, then that's, I think, the key thing. So, to, I mean, today that, that would mean, I think, breaking up some of the um, monopolistic and oligopolistic um, 
uh, rent-seeking arrangements we have in our economy, uh, re-empowering labor. I think it also means that we invest in people. I mean, it's a kind of cliched political slogan, but we, you know, we need to have an education system that, that works and that treats education as a social good and not just a, a private good that helps people on their, uh, you know, maximize their earnings over the next five years. Uh, and the same with um, healthcare. You know, other countries have figured this out, that to have a, a functioning modern society, you need to look at access to healthcare as part of what it means to be a member of our society. Uh, let's return a little bit to this question of the 9.9%. Um, what are some of the ways in which that gets reinforced. I'd love for you to talk more about how this works practically. And I would imagine many listeners will see themselves in these things, um, even though they themselves may not identify as an aristocrat. Sure. I mean, you can start with, um, with the neighborhoods, for example. We now have a huge divergence in, in real estate values. Everybody who spends time on, on Zillow knows this. Uh, and the effect of that is that um, people who happen to be in these good areas, uh, not only do they get a financial boon and a reward for staying in place, but they can then uh, build on that because, of course, being in that place gives them access to better education, gives them access to better commutes. And then, of course, what people in that situation do, and I'm, I'm talking about basically people in my immediate neighborhood right now, they figure out how to kind of draw up the uh, bridge behind them or slam the door shut. So they work pretty hard to um, make sure that the values in their own neighborhoods stay high, which means that they don't allow um, new construction. They exclude lots of um, potential development. And so that effectively consolidates their position uh, geographically. And that that's just one of the ways in which an elite group is starting to separate itself from the rest of society. But, but it's probably... Uh, the single most important one. And then, of course, there's there's the education system. Now, the education was historically the great uh, machine for opportunity in the United States, and that's what built a middle class. Uh, and there was a time when even access to higher education was uh, close to, to free or certainly was accessible in the United States. But we've now figured out, or at least a part of the elite has figured out, how to use that as a way of reproducing privilege. And, and the way we do it is pretty straightforward. You know, the, the selective colleges have all decided that uh, rather than invest in uh, creating more spaces and educating more people and offering their goods to society to in order to improve uh, opportunity, they've decided instead to uh, reduce their admissions rates, make themselves more selective. And the members of this class kind of participate in this by agreeing, well, this is a, 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 a competition, and we kind of like the competition because, on balance, we're more likely to win, and in fact, we are. Hmm. Well, terrific. Um, what a pleasure. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience. Yeah, it's great, Zach. I'm delighted to, to talk to you. We weren't taught how to handle our money or what to do with it or how to make it work for us. We were both raised very conservatively to save the money and hope for the best, I guess. I'm not really sure what was supposed to happen there and not take risks and always pay your credit card bill every month, which is good to not carry a balance, but we also didn't know how to leverage credit or make it work in our favor or allow ourselves to go further faster by getting a little bit creative with financing. So I think that that is 
Another huge advantage that our kids are gonna have is we're gonna make sure that we're all learning about money and we all know the best tactics and the skills and that we just are in the right frame of mind. You know, the doing air quotes here, but that 3% cost of living increase is not 3% cost of living increase, right? Statistics that create that statistic are missing, I think it's groceries and I think it's gasoline, I can't, I don't remember, but there's a couple like key staples of things that should influence what actual inflation looks like that aren't even put in the equation. They used to be and they were taken out and it's to drop what inflation looks like so that we want to see it. We're not shocked that it's actually like six or 8%, right? We see a 3% when it's really more. And so again, it's not that you could necessarily see some big jump, but it's just this erosion that eats away at it. So the family that we talk to about the shrinking middle class is already making plans. Essentially, they're responding to how much harder it is to be in the middle class than it once was. And they're optimizing around a, a circumstance that is getting worse. But I think it's worth zooming out and just sort of re-asking ourselves, why is the middle class important? Why is that story important? Why are the policies that hold it together important? And I think that it's very, very clear from the economic evidence, it's very clear from the social science that a thriving middle class is an indispensable part of a high-functioning modern society because it doesn't just anchor the economy, it also anchors civic life. The thriving middle class means that the majority of citizens, the preponderance of citizens, feel like they have something in common. There is social cohesion, commonality, a shared identity, common goals. And that sentiment is what holds democracies together. And that sentiment is what enables a society to move forward collectively through the various challenges that it will face. And I think, you know, what this episode reveals is that the American middle class didn't happen by accident. It was built piece by piece deliberately with policy choices. And today's dissolution of the middle class isn't happening by accident either. There are concrete policy choices that we made as you know, a, the, our a sort of neoliberal framework ended up you know, encouraging us to make that has systematically created a society where we're optimizing for creating a few rich people rather than optimizing for creating a huge number of middle class people. And I think that these are choices that we made and we can reverse those bad choices, what I, I would call unambiguously bad choices. And that's our responsibility. That's that's what we collectively need to do as Americans. And I suppose that's the point of this podcast is to alert people to the problem and to enable them to work in their communities, to encourage policy leaders and other folks to make better choices. I think I wouldn't be hopeful about the direction the economy is heading except that we've been able to change our mindset and change our plans and feel a little bit more confident, just really um, going against 
what we grew up thinking about money and how we're handling it. So I feel like we will be more prepared. Otherwise, if I didn't know that we had other options and if I didn't know that entrepreneurship could be a reality for us, I don't think I'd feel hopeful about it at all. So in the next episode, episode five, we're going to talk about how we should measure the economy because we've been getting that wrong for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, and by measuring it poorly, we get results that actually in terms of people we wish we didn't have. Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening.